Good morning. The reading today is from Luke 18, verse 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down from her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and I will not give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. Amen. Thanks, Pat. Well, I'm learning pretty quickly as a first-time parent that children have a way of wearing you down. (laughs) And our child's only a month old, so I can only imagine when he gets to be a teenager. But you get to this point where uh, we've had trouble trying to get him to go to sleep because he has colic. And I have this kind of bag of tricks of things that I can try to get him to go to sleep. And so I've tried a number of different things, and I've done research, and of course the obvious things, you know, you make sure they're not hungry, make sure their diaper is changed. But then there's a whole bunch of other things that, you know, I could try. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And, you know, one is swaddling them up real tight, one is kind of swinging them or, you know, gently rocking them. Uh, One is putting on some white noise. There's a lot of different things that I've tried, giving him a pacifier, putting him on his side or stomach, and thankfully it's gotten better now, but over the early part of last week, it was really rough. And so I would try all of these different things, and some of them would work, and I would see his eyes start to get heavy, and I'd be like, finally, we get to go to sleep. And I'd go, and I'd put him in that bassinet, and it would be quiet for five minutes. And then he would start screaming again. And then you try doing the same thing over again. His eyes would get heavy. You put him in the bassinet, start screaming again. Eventually, I get to the point like, I don't know what to do. Eventually, he gets to the point where he's screaming even if I'm holding him. And I'm like, Stephanie, your baby needs you. I mean, you get to a point where you get kind of worn out and you don't know what to do. And so you just kind of give up. And Stephanie, here you, give, him a, give it a try. And I think that's a picture of sometimes how we view prayer. And we have this kind of bag of tricks, so to speak, things that we try when we pray. Maybe we have a prayer journal. Maybe we've listened to a message about prayer. Uh, Maybe we've studied prayer in, in the Scriptures or maybe did something online with studying prayer. And we start off real optimistic that God is going to answer our prayers. And so we pray fervently and God doesn't answer all those prayers. Maybe we do see some uh, answers to prayer, but there's some things that remain unanswered. And these things that remain unanswered, maybe there's some big, heavy, hurtful things, and we keep praying and we keep praying, but it seems like God doesn't answer the prayer, and then we get to a point where we kind of get worn out. 
feel like we should almost give up. And as Christians, we would never say this. We would never, you know, downplay the importance of prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. But practically, we get to a point where we're just worn out. And we feel like, should I keep praying? Is this doing anything? Well, if you've ever felt even a little bit like that, I believe that this passage, this parable, is for you. The nice part about this passage and this parable is that Luke gives us a clue about what the parable means. Most of Jesus' parables, he tells the parable and we have to kind of discern what it means. But in this parable, Luke tells us right off the bat what the meaning of this parable is. That he told this parable to his disciples to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not to lose heart. That's the point of the parable that he's about to uh, to tell. Another word to translate the Greek word for lose heart is to grow weary, to get tired. I like the way that one Greek dictionary defines this word as to lose one's motivation and continuing a desirable pattern of conduct or activity. To lose enthusiasm, to be discouraged. And sometimes we can do that. We can lose motivation in prayer. We can get discouraged. We can get tired. And yet Jesus tells this parable to the effect that we always ought to pray and we, so that we do not lose heart. So let's look a little bit deeper in this passage. We see that there's a certain man, a certain judge, and it says in the text, he neither feared God nor respected man. We see the first that this judge has no concern for God or man. And this picture of the judge that Jesus paints is completely opposite to what a judge should be. In the Old Testament, judges were supposed to fear God. They were supposed to uphold God's commandments. That's the whole idea of what a judge was. They were to affirm the rule of God among the people of uh, among men. They were also to care for the widow, the widows, the orphans, those who were fatherless, those who were in need, those who were vulnerable. That was their calling as a judge, to fear God, to carry out His will, and also to care for those around them to make sure that they were safe and protected. And yet this judge, he has no concern for either one. He just doesn't care. And because of this, we see that the widow has no recourse. She has nowhere else to go. The Scriptures are emphatic that the people of God were to care for orphans and widows because they were people who were helpless. Now, there wasn't any social security. There wasn't life insurance. There wasn't the things that we know today. And so if someone's, a woman's husband died, she might become destitute. Unless her husband was super wealthy and left her a lot of money, she might be sent to the streets. Unless her family took care of her or somebody took care of her, she often had nowhere to go. And so she has no recourse. She has to go to this judge. And we're told in the passage that she asked for justice against my adversary. We don't know exactly what that meant. Uh, Perhaps her husband had passed away, left her some money, and somebody else was trying to get their fingers in that money. We don't know exactly the circumstances, but what we do know is she probably really, really needed this case. She probably was depending on this justice just to survive, just to put food on the table. And so the only thing that she can do is go to this unjust, unrighteous judge, and she keeps going back day after day after day after day. She has nothing else to do. And so she's persistent, and we see that her persistence 
pays off. Each time she goes, it starts to wear down this judge. And finally, he gives in. And he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, and it's amazing that he would even admit that. It's almost like he's proud of it. Like, I don't care what God says. I don't care what people say. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And it seems like he's almost proud of that. But he says, even though I don't care about what God says, even though I don't care uh, what other people are, ha- are doing, I don't care about their well-being, I do care about one thing, I care about myself. And this woman, she is bothering me. This woman, she is driving me crazy. I don't care about her. I don't care about honoring God, but I might as well just give her her justice because then she'll get out of my hair. And so he does. And her persistence pays off. Now, when we think about this passage, I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand the meaning of this passage, and we can get a little bit confused. Because when we look at this story, I think we want to kind of insert ourselves and kind of place different characters to kind of make this relatable. So it's easy to see ourselves as kind of the widow. Apart from God, we're helpless. We need Him. We need His grace. We need His support. We need His life in our lives. And so it's easy to see ourselves as the widow, and that makes sense to us. But then sometimes we want to make God to be the judge. And so we think about the judge, and the judge was unrighteous. The judge didn't care about pleasing God. He didn't care about pleasing man. And so then, so what is God saying? What is Jesus trying to communicate here? I mean, if God's the judge, then is Jesus saying that God doesn't really care about what we do. He doesn't care about us, but if we're really persistent, if we keep bothering him, maybe we'll kind of twist his arm to do what we want him to do. Of course that's not true. Of course that's not the heart of God. Of course that's not what Jesus is trying to communicate. God's not the judge in the story. Look again what Jesus says. It says, and the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. It will not give, and it will not God give justice to his elect to cry out to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving a afiorti argument, and what that means is he's giving an argument from the lesser to the greater. For example, I could say having one baby is difficult. That's the lesser. But I could say having two babies is even more difficult. That's the greater. And so we see that God is trying to demonstrate not that he's the judge, but he's much greater than the judge. If, if, it, if a judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about man, if he could be twisted, if his arm could be twisted to do what this widow wants him to do, how much more would a God who cares about his children, how much more would he respond when his children cry out to him? And we see something very interesting in this passage. We see that when it comes to the cries of his children, God is impatient. He has no patience for the cries of his children. Look at what it says at the end of verse 7. The text says, will he delay long over them? Now the word for delay can be translated as patient. One Greek dictionary describes it this way, to remain tranquil, tranquil while waiting, to have patience and wait. 
So you might translate this phrase as, will he be patient on their behalf? Will he be patient when he hears the cries of his children? Now, when our son Paul cries, does Stephanie and I think to ourselves, well, we'll just wait till tomorrow and see, see if maybe he's having a good day tomorrow. When he's in his crib crying, we're kind of impatient, like, what should we do? Likewise, even my parents, if I called my mom, left a voicemail on her machine, and I'm sobbing, I said, I'm really going through a rough time, I don't know what to do. As soon as she got that message, she would call me back. She wouldn't talk to my dad, say, hey, Matthew's going through a rough time, he was crying, hopefully he feels better next week. No, she would be calling my phone the moment she got that message. And if she didn't get me, she would call Stephanie. If she didn't get Stephanie, she'd be on my doorstep within an hour. Because, children, because parents don't have patience for the cries of their children. It's not the way that they're wired. And I think this passage shows us that God doesn't have patience for the cries of his children either. When we cry out to him, he's not unmoved. They don't just go up to heaven and just stay there. He doesn't ignore our cries. He hears them, and he has no patience for them. He must act. He must respond to his children's cries. We see this in a number of places throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 2, we see the people of God were being oppressed in Egypt, and the people of Israel cried out to God. And look at what it says in verses 23 to 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Likewise, in 2 Samuel 22, King David spoke these words as God delivered him from the hands of his enemies, especially from the hands of King Saul. He says, for the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. A blind beggar comes up to Jesus as described in Mark chapter 10. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, this beggar. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have, David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And he called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. God hears the cries of his people. And if persistence could cause an unjust, unrighteous judge who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care about man, if that could cause him to move and act, how much more, if we're persistent in prayer, would it cause the Father to act on our behalf? But we might say to ourselves, that sounds good in principle, but I've been praying for certain things for days, months, years. And it seems like those things don't change. And I don't really believe that God hears my cry. First of all, we need to make sure we're praying for the right things. But we'll talk a little bit about more that in a second. But how do we know that God really isn't hearing our cries? How do we know that He's not answering? 
Remember when you were a kid and uh, you were waiting for something you were looking forward to, like Christmas or birthday or vacation, and it would get to be like December 1st, and you'd think to yourself, Christmas is so far away, and you just couldn't wait for it to come. And then when the day finally came, it just seemed like it was such a long time when you'd go down and open up presents and play with them, and it just seemed like such a long time. And then you get a little bit older, and I know I'm thinking about Christmas, and I'm like, I thought it was just church in the park. I thought we just had Christmas last year, and yet it's coming right around the corner. And the reason that, they, that some theorists say that we perceive time differently as we get older is that the more time you have, the faster it goes. In other words, if you're 10 years old, you only have 10 years, that's all you have to work with, one year seems really big. It seems like a lot. And so time seems to move a lot slower. But if you get older, 30, 40, 60, 50, 60, 70, 80, and you have more years, time just keeps going faster and faster. I think the same thing is true with God. Uh, Peter hints at that when he says in 1 Peter 3, or 2 Peter 3, 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. And you, so you think of when we get older, time seems to move faster and faster, but imagine a God who's always been and always will be. Think about how fast time moves. And so we're praying for something for a year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, and it seems like an eternity to us when, on our end, but to God, it's just a moment. So when we say God doesn't hear my cries, maybe He hears our cries and He's acting, and from His perspective, He's acting quickly, speedily. And even if it seems like God's delaying in light of eternity, it's just a moment. In this passage, in this context, Jesus talks about God's people, God's elect, calling out for justice day after day, for freedom from the oppression of the world. And of course, God has reasons why He doesn't come back and make the world right right now. Of course, in Second Peter, it talks about how He's waiting for people to come to repentance. So He's waiting. But still, He's coming quickly. That's why Jesus could say that he's coming soon, even 2,000 years ago, because in God's mind, it's coming. And it's coming quickly, even though it's delayed. And so Jesus hears, God hears the cries of his people. And it seems maybe slow to us, but from his perspective, it says in the text that he comes speedily. He's impatient when it comes to the cries of his children. And yet Jesus says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on this earth? When the Son of Man comes, will He find people praying? Will He find people believing and continuing the work of God? Now, when we think about prayer, there's many different aspects of prayer. And there's some aspect of prayer that's just kind of a spontaneous prayer where we kind of just feel close to God, especially you know, when we're worshiping Him and thanking Him for all that He's done for us. But there's another aspect of prayer that can be best defined as work. It's difficult. Uh, 20th century uh, uh, Norwegian pastor named uh, Ole Halsby likens prayer to mining as it was done in Norway in his day. And when they were mining in that day, what they would do is they would bore 
big, long holes that were strategically placed in the rocks. And these hole, these long shafts that they would build were very difficult to, uh, to dig. They took a lot of persistence, a lot of diligence. And so that's the first thing that they would do. But then after these holes uh, were finished, they would put a shot inside of these, these cavities and they would put a wick at the end and then they would light the wick and then the explosion would happen. And he talks about those two different kinds of mining. The one is hard and persistent where you have to dig these holes in, in trenches in specific spots and it takes a long time and it's difficult. But then this other type where you just put the fuse in, light it, and you see these results. And he talks about these different kinds of, of as, as illustrating different kinds of prayer. And he talks about how it takes hard work to engage in this kind of hole-drilling prayer. But what we often want is we want just the spark. We want the easy answer. We want to see results right away. Pastor Tim Keller comments and says, the helpful, this helpful illustration warns against doing only fuse-lighting prayers the kind that we soon drop off if we, if we do not get immediate results. If we both believe in the power of prayer and in the wisdom of God, we'll have a patient prayer life, whole boring. Mature believers know that handling the tedium is part of what makes for effective prayers. We must avoid extremes of either not asking God for things or thinking we can bend God's will to ours. We must combine tenacious importunity, a striving with God, with a deep acceptance of God's wise will whatever it is. So God calls us to persistence in prayer because he hears our cries. But before we go any further, I just need to make a comment that when we're talking about persistence in prayer, we're not talking about stubbornness. There's a difference between being persistent in prayer and being stubborn. Because sometimes we can pray for certain things, and God hears our cry, he gives us an answer, and the answer is no. And every door he closes and he says, no, no, no. But we want these things so badly that we just keep crying out and trying to change his mind and almost trying to convince him that we're right and he's wrong. That's not persistence, that's stubbornness. If God says no and we keep trying to push down the doors and change his mind, that's just being stubborn. We're talking about persistence in prayer. We're talking about praying for the things that we know that God wants. We know that God wants people to come to know him. And so we're persistent praying for our loved ones who are far from Jesus. We know that God wants our marriages to be filled with peace and to be a picture of his love for the church. And so we keep praying that God would make our marriages like that. We know that God would want us to experience financial peace. Not in the sense of having riches, but being content and trusting in Him to provide. And so we pray that God would give us those things. We know that God would have us experience joy and relief from mental illness. Sometimes we don't experience that, and so we pray patiently that God would give us rest. These are the things that we call out to God, things that we know that God wants for us, but we don't see them happening right away. And as we're persistent, God hears our cries, and he responds speedily. George Mueller was a man who was very close with God. He started some orphanages, a number of different things, had a profound impact on the cause of Christ. 
And uh, you can do a little research about his life. There's incredible stories about how he relied on God to provide for him and the, his orphanage and how God came through every step of the way. And there's one particular instance where he really struggled with prayer and how he really had to be persistent in praying for the things that he knew that God wanted. And he describes it in his prayer journal this way. He says, in 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on, on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thank God for the second. And I prayed for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. And six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three, went on praying for the other two. Yet these two remained unconverted. Thirty-six years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. He wrote, in eight, but I hope in God... I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray, after he had passed away, these two men came to know Jesus Christ. It's all because he was persistent in prayer. He prayed for the things that mattered. He believed that God would answer. And even though he didn't see it in his lifetime, God heard his cry, and God came to his aid. Ladies and gentlemen, let's not give up the hard work of prayer. Let's not give up praying for our loved ones who don't know the Lord. Even though they seem far from the Lord, even though everything that we do seems to push them away, let's not give up on them. Let's not stop praying for the relief of injustice, that those who are vulnerable in our society would experience justice. Let's not stop praying for marriages to be healed. Let's not stop praying for God's vision and God's kingdom to come on this earth. Because when we pray, God can't ignore our cries. Because when it comes to the cries of his children, God has no patience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you hear us when we cry to you. We thank you that you're not anything like the unjust judge in the parable that you told us, that you care for us even at great cost to yourself. And Lord, we know that when we cry out to you, you can't help but answer. To us, we need to have patience. We know it's difficult sometimes when we don't see the answers that we would like and the time that we'd like, but help us to know, help us to believe that you truly are answering and that you're coming quickly to our aid, even though it seems long to us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us persistence, that we wouldn't give up the hard work of prayer, that we would trust that you would provide and that you would come through in your timing, in your way. In Christ's name I pray, amen.